You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. For the carols by candlelight, be a fantastic time. Uh, I know Mark is pulling it together this year. For those that are new, we did our first ever Christmas uh, carols last year, and uh, we used the hall upstairs. I was just explaining to someone this morning, I can't remember how many we were as a church last year, maybe 60 by Christmas, was it something like that? And in faith, we'd taken the main hall, and um, we saw 200 people come for the carol service. A great time. The mayor came along, which was great, having the mayor of Ealing there doing a reading. I know uh, Mark has invited this week all 69 local councillors, because we want to say to them, look, we're praying for you. We meet in the building. Four have already come back to say, I'm coming, which is brilliant. One MP has already come back to say, I'd like to be there. And I had a form from the mayor, which I had to fill in yesterday. So I'm really hoping that the mayor will be there as well. Uh, I've been, you know, I'm just constantly thinking, oh, who could I invite? So this week, the, the person who does the bookings for us at the town hall that I've been in contact with over the last two years, I said, oh, look, you know that we're doing this. You've done the booking. <laughs> but I'd love to personally invite you to come and join us. And he said, I'm free that evening. I'll bring my wife. So I think it's a great opportunity just to do this. We will uh, let you all know it will be a fantastic time. We've got a school choir that's going to be singing. Uh, we will preach the gospel and we'll invite people to an alpha course. It will be a great evening. encourage you to get behind that. Anyway, if you've got a Bible, hopefully you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 7. If not, it will be coming up here. We're doing this series, Nehemiah, A Tale of Two Cities. Just very quickly, this is our fifth week. We know that he built the walls for Jerusalem. And so we could think, oh, was it just a physical thing there? But actually, we believe that he was caught up in something of the city of God. And that actually it wasn't just something physically that happened two and a half thousand years ago, but it was something that we can learn about for today because we believe we're building the city of God. And actually, we believe it's something that's going to be eternal. There's almost this picture of, of God's city, which is the new Jerusalem that will come back. So we're looking at this very much thinking, how does it impact us? And I'm going to be reading the first five verses of Nehemiah chapter 7. After the wall had been rebuilt, and I'd set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanai, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Then there's this list of the exiles, those that have been carried away by the invading forces who returned. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it. The houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who'd been the first to return. And then to be honest, the rest of the chapter is very similar to the record of Ezra, of those that had returned, and I'm not going to attempt to read all those. I'm going to pray. Father, we ask, as we're building your city right here, right now, that you'd speak to us through this book. 
We ask that our eyes would be opened by looking at this sort of true, historical, physical story, that there'd be something that catches our hearts. Lord, we've loved it. We've worshipped you this morning, and we already feel undone. We feel unworthy. And you come and speak to us such tender words of removing shame, of your love for us, of all that Christ has done on the cross. We're, we're blown away. We ask, Holy Spirit, we believe that you're the one that inspired these words to be written. We ask that you'd speak to us now for your glory. Amen. I don't know about you. I mean, I think this is a, a remarkable thing. If, if I'd have written the book, and I often think that when I'm reading the Bible, if I'd have written the book of Nehemiah, I probably would have stopped at chapter 7, verse 1. Job done. I don't know what your personality type is. Mine is I'm an achiever. I like to accomplish things. I like to be given a task. I like to feel it's done. Nehemiah had this task. The task was what? He wanted to go to this city to rebuild the walls. And then suddenly it says, job done. Not only was it job done, it was a miracle. If you read the book, you realize that they only took 52 days. This is absolutely outstanding. It had been a project that had been left undone for over 100 years. I mean, I thought I was bad at DIY. I thought I could procrastinate. I mean, this nation, they, they just left it in ruins for years. I tell you what this is, this is a day of breakthrough. When we read in this story, we need to get something of the excitement. I mean, I wish, you know, that I'd been creative enough to give you all the party popper this morning. And that literally, I could go, job done, and you'll go, bang, great. You know what I'm saying? If we had streamers going, I think that's the kind of feeling you'd have. Do we believe that God's going to do those kind of jobs amongst us? Do we believe that miraculous things are going to happen amongst us? I think, why not? I'd love to come to church with this sort of sense of, actually, it's not, do, do I just sort of bring a heavy old Bible? It's, it's, am I going to bring me air horn? I don't know about you. When I was a kid, I always wanted an air horn on my bike. You know, there's something of excitement. You know, there's this, whoa, come on, something's happening. There's something of excitement. This is how I think we should look at this. Job done despite opposition. And some of you would know this, that actually, if, you, if I'd have read to you the hold of Nehemiah 6, and in fact, Nehemiah 4, there's two chapters there, there was huge opposition to this work going on. People that you thought might have helped got angry, they spoke negatively about the job, they plotted against them, they stirred up trouble, they invited sort of superstars of the day to turn up and say, what on earth are you doing? They mocked them. They were saying, golly, if even a fox was to walk on that wall, it would collapse. In fact, they tried to scare Nehemiah so much. They said, look, we're going to kill you. Run for your life. They tried to encourage him to hide in the temple so that he would stop doing the task. I tell you, when I read this about building the city of God, I think there's opposition. We don't like talking about that, do we? I'd much rather talk about the air horn moments, wouldn't you? I'd much rather talk about the celebration times. But actually, when you read this, being a Christian's hard. I've always said Christianity is not a crutch for the weak. It's a machete for the adventurous. It's not, it's not oh golly, actually I can't struggle. I'm just going to lean on Christianity. This is hard work. Paul writes to the church and he says this, put on the full armor of God. I don't know about you, I've never seen them wear armor on a beach. You just don't do it, do you? 
You wear armor where there's a battle. And actually, as Christians, I sometimes think, God, I can feel that a little bit this week, if I'm really honest. I feel, God, this week, to me, has felt a bit of a battle. I don't know about you. What's it been like? Do you feel like, oh, I just feel it's been a bit of a tough time? Then I think the story of Nehemiah 2 this morning would say, fight on. Fight on. My son, Josh, is not here, but we love going to see the cinema. I don't know how many of you have seen The Expendables. Expendables, about 17, I think, is out now. They've got to make so many sequels. Sylvester Stallone, if you've never seen Expendables, you might have seen Rocky. He says this, I am not the richest, smartest, or most talented person in the world, but I succeed because I keep going and going and going. Now, I don't know if you think he succeeded or not, but I thought, what an attitude. I'm going to keep going. My youngest son, Isaac, decided that he wanted to do a park run. I don't know how many people are aware of what park runs are. Put your hand up if you've ever been to one. Oh, got it. Put your hand up if you know what one is. Oh, dear. <laughs> so we've got a lot of theorists in the room. I can pick that up. That's fine. Park runs, basically, they're all over the country. In fact, I think all over the world. You turn up in a park and you run five kilometers. And they sort of time you as you're doing it. And hundreds of thousands of people would do it every week. There's one in Gunnersbury Park. So my son's friend had done it, and he said, Dad, why don't we go and do one? So I said, okay, so yesterday we're down there at 9 o'clock in the morning, ready to go for our park run. 1K in, we're still talking well, you know what I'm saying? Two kilometers in, we're feeling sick. You know, three kilometers in, a daisy could trip us up. But we made it, and we didn't stop. Is that right, Isaac? We got to the end, and that is the attitude we've got to have when building a church. It's like it's easy to start and get excited about the first kilometer. How do we keep going? So we know, don't we, from this that, this, that the job is done despite opposition because God was involved. You see, it says, uh, and even the enemies recognize this, the enemies recognized that it was a God thing. I love this. Nehemiah is wise enough to realize it's not about him. You see, He's not a better builder than anyone who's existed for the last 100 years. Because what's his job? Anyone, come on, who, what did Nehemiah do? What do we find out at the beginning of the book? Cupbearer. So cupbearers, you know what I'm saying? They're sort of dainty artistic people, really, aren't they? They're not what I call blistered, hard-working people. He did not build the wall because he was skilled at it. He did not build the wall because he just happened to be the man. It's not like he had a great gang. He said, come on, guys. He lived a long way away. We think it took him four months to travel across the desert to get to the place. He turned up as a total stranger in Jerusalem. He realized it was not about his skill. He realized it was not about his personality. He realized it was what God had done. I mean, I love that, don't you? I believe that for Redeemer. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I love that, don't you? Because there's this sort of sense of, it's a God thing. This is all by way of introduction. I've not yet started my time. The preacher's not yet begun. I'm just trying to explain. This is quick. So I'm going to be moving on because what is the whole purpose of what we're looking at this morning? The thing that we want to look at this morning is this. Nehemiah realized it wasn't about walls. It was about his calling and his inheritance. 
You see, I think, and I keep trying to say this, the danger is we can look at Nehemiah and we think he built the walls of Jerusalem. What he realized was this. This is a big city, but there's only a few people in it. Actually, my calling is to win the nations. My inheritance are a people for God. And I think that this is what he was doing. He was almost, there's a statement, I, was, I would say a prophetic statement of faith here by saying, look, you could say job done, let's go home. But no, what he said is, this is not done, this has only just begun. I'm aware and I have to be careful now, you know, start using illustrations, people turn around or they don't know. A couple of people here are expecting babies in the, between now and Christmas. And I know whenever you start talking to people that are expecting growth, growth of their family, you know, suddenly there's a lot of preparation going on. You know, they're buying car seats and cots and nappies and wet. You know, it's almost like, how do you prepare for this? I feel that Nehemiah has been gathering all this stuff for one principal reason. I will build the walls. I will restore the gates. I will build the towers for one reason. Growth. You see, I believe that Nehemiah understood something about the city of God that echoes right the way through the Bible. I don't know, but, you know, when I was a kid, I mean, you ever go in a tunnel under the road, you know, and you're just on these little pathways? I don't know why, you just want to shout, don't you? Because if you shout, ooh, 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 you think, oh, it's great, isn't it? There's something about it. And your parents say, oh, don't make so much noise, Pete. And it just goes all the way down. There's something, I don't know why, I just find echoes attractive. I'm still like that. My, my family tell me off for clapping too much around the house. But there's something about, oh, this noise. Nehemiah understood that there'd been an echo right the way through the Bible. And actually, it was going to achieve something. It wasn't just some noise. You see, he would have remembered the prophecy from Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet that basically before the, the people of God, called the Israelites, before they got taken into exile, he prophesied the book, and I don't want to get too caught into it, 66 chapters, first 39 chapters are basically pre-exile, basically saying, you are naughty people, doom and gloom is coming your way. The next 27 chapters, actually, but God will come in grace and restore his people. How do I remember that? It's, it's like the Bible. There's 66 books in the Bible, and there's 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. Just a little secret slipping in there. In chapter 62, which therefore is the second half, the, the story of hope, he says this. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. Till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. Some of you love this, it's prophetic words. Some of you are thinking, I haven't got a clue what he's talking about. Stick with me. Verse 2. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. He's speaking about the city of God. He's speaking about the people of God. He says, you will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand. A royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer... Will they call you deserted or your name or name your land desolate? But you'll be called Hepzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. And it's almost like you could see that there's this prophetic picture, Isaac, of Isaiah of a wedding. He's, it's almost like he said, Oh, there's love coming your way. 
And this is a God thing. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I've posted watchmen on your walls. They will never be silent. Isaiah was, was declaring prophetically over the people, look, I know you're going to go into judgment, but hope is coming. There's going to be something. He was saying, the nations will see. You'll no longer be deserted. There's something of excitement, energy, passion, life. So what happens to Nehemiah? He says, look, this is a spacious city, but there's only a few people in it. In his echo, 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 he's thinking, no, Isaiah said it wouldn't be like this. In his echo, he'd have also seen this picture. The second picture we've got here is actually of a mountain. Why would that? Because the prophet Micah, who prophesied at the same time as Isaiah, which was just before they went into exile, was saying this. Look, what you're doing now offends God. This is what the prophet Micah said. He said, oh, goodness, say, just stop it. You're offending God. God's going God's to smack you hard. That's Pete's translation for the book of Micah. But there is hope. And it says in Micah 4, verse 1, the mountain, uh, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and people will stream to it. So this echo, echo, echo that Nehemiah hears is what? Now, actually, God's people, God's city, is going to be this huge thing. The nations will stream to it. So what he's declaring, hey, hey, this is, not, this is not good enough. What we've built is not job done. Even Jeremiah, and I know there's loads of these prophets. I've had fun this week looking at how they all fit in the chart. You can read Jeremiah sometimes. You think, well, how was he? He was a very unpopular prophet. He said, God is going to punish you. Basically, the Babylonians are going to take you into exile, but the punishment won't last forever. And he brings another picture to the people. And, and, and he would have had this, and, and this is, I know this is Dubai, but it's meant to be, you're going to be a rich and a famous city. He wasn't saying you're going to be Dubai. He said, just that's the only picture I could think of Google at the time, you see. And he said this in Jeremiah 11, the sounds of joy and gladness, the voice of bride and bridegroom, and the voices of those who thank, bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. His love endures, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before. So Nehemiah thought, hey, Jeremiah prophesied over God's people something of restoration, of busyness, of industry, of excitement, of prosperity. And he looks at these completed walls. And he says, this is not it. This is not it. This is a spacious place with few people. I wish I could go on and on. One more prophet that I'm just going to bring up. This is another echo. Echo. You see what I'm getting at? The final one. Uh, he, he wasn't talking about the Far East. He was just talking about your streets will be densely populated. Zechariah. Zechariah was one of the prophets. So the others have been a bit earlier. Zechariah was a bit later. And when um, some of the people started going back to Jerusalem... He was one of the prophets that went back at the same time. And when he gets back there, he prophesies over these ruins. And people that have come back from captivity and think, oh, what's going to happen? Zechariah speaks out these words. 
This is what the Lord Almighty says, Zechariah chapter 8. I am very jealous for Zion. I'm burning with jealousy for her. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing. And he goes on in his prophecy to say, this place is going to be absolutely rammed. Why? Because God says, I'm going to bring people to it. So Nehemiah would have listened to that and thought, God says he's going to return. Boys and girls playing here, save people. There's going to be a sense of life. So as Nehemiah's job done, walls completed, the echoes of the prophets are in his ears. No, no, this is a big city, and there are few people here. And I think there's almost this sense of right throughout the Bible, and I don't want to over-egg my illustration, but I think right throughout the Bible, this is a theme that Nehemiah picks up on. So actually, if I went right back to Adam and Eve, what did God say to them? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. There's something of growth and expansion. I think actually if we th we, you could pick that theme up the whole way through the 66 books of the Bible. If you um, listen to Jesus, if you look at the life of Jesus, he was always on about, sort of, I was going to say, movement and growth and advance. We know that he said often, I can't stay in this town. Why? Because actually when he was teaching, he said, I've got to go on to the next town. Sorry, next slide. Jesus was often saying to these people, come on, this is the thing. Jesus, it's time for the kingdom to go. When he told a parable about the kingdom, he says this, it's the parable of the sower. Actually, Matthew 13, what you sow comes back a hundred times. I mean, that's astronomical. I'm not a sower, but I mean, you think that's mind-blowing. That was his understanding of the growth of the kingdom. When he talked about the kingdom, he said it's like a mustard seed. Smallest seed, largest plant. That's how Jesus understood it. Jesus then said to his disciples, didn't he, go into all the world. Why? Because there's this sense of growth echoing right throughout the kingdom. We see this as well, not only just with Jesus, but we see it in the early church. I don't know who this was. I'm saying this is Peter and Pentecost. I was named after Peter. Be a great picture to have up there. He was saying right at the outset of the early church, Hey, our heart is this. We're going Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, at the ends of the earth. We know, don't we, from Acts 2, 47, that God added to their number daily. Has anybody yet picked up the word that I've got in my head today? Growth. Just turn to the person next to you and say, growth. If they've not heard from me, they've heard from you. People can go away. Yet, yeah, no, that's not something on their faith or on their, on their face or their foot. This is something that God is challenging us about. Growth. Growth. This has happened right throughout church history. If you think about it, we've seen some amazing things in terms of growth and church history. This is Wesley. Wesley, uh, many would know, was the founder of Methodism. He didn't want to found Methodism. He just actually wanted to preach to people and the church buildings weren't big enough. So he went into the open air and massive great crowds would gather to him. Whitfield as well, hundreds and thousands of people would gather to them. I was reading, I read in Scotland this week, out of a population of 900, 500 got saved. That's like over 50%. I was thinking if that was Ealing, there's 340,000 people living, that's 100 and, 
75,000 people that we would take inside. I mean, whoa, you know, could I believe that kind of growth? They talk about in Wales and the revival in 1859 that 100,000 people were added to the church. The population of Wales at the time, they reckon, was 1.25 million. 10% added just through that revival. What about growth today? You see, not everybody grew up in England. I appreciate that. I did. And if we're really honest, the danger in England is we can have this mentality about the church, last one out, turn off the lights. I found it shocking just this week as I've been doing this that some people live in converted church buildings. I mean, they just turn them into luxury apartments, don't they? You think people that just got too much money, they're going to buy swanky lounges with big stained glass windows in because people aren't going to church anymore. There's several buildings like that around this borough. You think, oh, that used to be a church building and now it's a community hall. That used to be a church building and now it's a warehouse. And it's almost like we've had a mentality that actually we're on the back foot. We're a mentality, golly, how's it going to happen? How a mentality, can we close churches down? Could we have one person that could oversee three or four different churches? But actually, I don't think that's God's picture. I don't think that's the biblical picture. This is one which I loved. I know it's out of focus, but I thought that just adds something to it. If any of you have heard of the evangelist from Germany called Reinhard Bonnke, it's called Christ for All Nations. I mean, he's preaching in Africa to, to crowds of millions. Literally, there's this, whoa, look at this. I mean, I, I know I'm going to run out of time, so I'm going to have to go through very quickly on this. I found some fascinating stats this week. The number of Christians in Indonesia has grown from 1.3 million 40 years ago to over 11 million today. In 40 years. I mean, that's phenomenal, isn't it? The Jesus film, I don't know how many of you have seen the old classic, was it in the 70s, Robert Powell, wasn't it? Has been translated now into 1,000 languages, and they've had over 200 million people make decisions for Christ as a result of watching that film. Why is that? Because I think the echoes of God and growth that you could see in Nehemiah saying, look, this is too small a thing, is still happening today. They reckon about 500 Muslims come to faith in Christ every month in Iran, a country ranked among the top 10 persecutors of Christianity in the world. They reckon that there was no Christian officially allowed to live in Nepal until 1960. Now there is a church in every one of the 75 districts of Nepal with the estimates of over half a million believers. How about this? Are we seeing a Bangladesh revival like the Book of Acts? A church leader there wrote to a friend recently, by your strong prayers, the Lord has saved, I love this, don't you, 4,452 4, people and planted 150 churches from January to June in 2006. <laughs> okay, not bad. Our goal is to plant 300 churches and see 9,000 saved in a year. Because why? Because there's something of understanding that this is not enough. Understanding this is too small a thing for God. In Korea, in 1900, I know that's 114 years ago, bear with me. It was deemed impossible to penetrate 
They reckon today that Korea is 30% Christians and there are 7,000 churches in, in the capital alone and several of these churches have over 1 million in attendance. I mean, that's like 114. You suddenly think, wow, what is God doing? They reckon every day 20,000 Africans come to Christ in 1900, they reckon there was 3% believers there. They reckon it's now 50%. They reckon in China now, there's 60 to 80 million. I know that's quite a big gap. It's hard to count, that kind of number. With 10 to 25,000 converts a day. In Central Asia, a church planted in Uzbekistan just four years ago has grown to 3,000. Uzbekistan, I mean, who's heard of that as this great you know, growth place? 3,000, listen to this, four years ago, and has planted 55 other churches. Okay, guys, what are we playing at? In Buenos Aires, Argentina, there's this one church I read about called Wave of Love and Peace. I may rename if it helps us catch it, you know. Apparently, it tracks 225,000 people a week. Services take place in a converted movie theater from 9 a.m. till midnight. You thought you worked hard today. Wait till it really gets going. And they baptize 3,000 people a month. Now, what I'd love, almost prophetically, is for us. Are we prepared to say, job done? Are we prepared to say, actually, there's far too few people here? You know what I'm saying? I think, do we understand the prophetic echoes of Scripture for God's heart for growth and advance? Or do we say, wow, miraculous, built a wall in 52 days. I think there's a challenge for us. We had a guy come amongst us. Uh, if you've been around for the last few weeks, you'd know this guy came and prophesied over us in September by Julian Adams. He said this, the next six months, the next six to nine months are going to be months of incredible acceleration the suddenly growth is going to come. Suddenly God is going to burst things open. You're going to have to build around the growth. In the past season, you built for growth, but in the next season, you will be around growth and you will increase the growth. I take that very seriously. I printed out this whole prophetic word. I would encourage you, if God speaks to you, print it out, pray into it. I'm thinking, oh God, what's this Nehemiah story telling me? I want to make three challenges about growth. In some ways, I wish I could stop right on those big stories. But I think we find this from chapter 7. Growth has a cost and has an impact upon lives. And are we prepared to step up and make that, pay that price? You see, I've read some wonderful stats about what God is doing around the world. I found this one really tragic. They reckon around the world at the moment, 270, that's more than double the people in this room, die every day, are martyred for being Christians. They reckon in 10 years, between 2000 and 2010, 1 million people worldwide will have been martyred because they said, Jesus is Lord, and I won't back down. I think a million in my lifetime? Oh, Father, what am I doing? What I understand is this, that there's a sacrifice people pay for some of those stats I've just read. There's a cost. 
And I think Nehemiah is really like this. I think there is an impact of growth. I think the first thing would be this is, where do you live? What I want to do is I want to get us to get this. How do we get this building this city for God? The first thing he says is he gathers the people in. And if you've not been around, you'd have known that actually when they first built the walls, people traveled from 20 miles into Jerusalem to help build the walls. We know even here it said the houses weren't built. People weren't living there. People had relocated. We're going to be looking at this another week, so I better not over-preach this point. There's a huge challenge of what's your kingdom mindset? Are you going to choose where you live for the kingdom? I think that would be something that would come through it. I know already that when we started this church, it's almost coming up for two years, be two years in January, that people here moved to Ealing because they said, actually, I want to get involved in a church plant. People would say, I've got that kingdom mentality. I'm not trying to say he was a hero. I'm, you know, there weren't loads of choices. But I said to my son, I would choose this university because there's a church there and it'd be great for you to get involved in that. Myself, the university I went to, I chose not based on the course. I, I chose it based on the church. I felt, God, where would you have me give four years? I would even throw this out to people. Where do you think to live? Even before you take a job. Do you take a job and think, oh, I'm just going to move wherever because that's where the job is? Or do you think, actually, God, what about your kingdom? What's the eternal city that I'm getting caught up in? Where's right for me to live? I think it's great people choose to live in London. I've been, uh, been out to see some friends, and you think, golly, if I moved out to where you live, out in the countryside, I could afford a much nicer house. But actually, I live here for the kingdom. I think there's a challenge on where we live. I think another challenge is this, is what do you do? The whole list that I didn't read through, he appoints gatekeepers, he appoints singers, he appoints Levites, he appoints servants. You see... Nehemiah realized that if they were going to see this, this city populated, people would need to get up and do something. I don't understand it. John Stott, who's a very clever Christian author, used to call it the antipathy of Scripture. There's two opposing things that are true, and yet I can't put them together. I cannot understand why actually God could do anything. He could save anyone right now. He chooses to use me. You know, and I think, well, if he, does he need me or does he do it himself? I can't get an answer to that. What I do know is these two things come together in God. I believe that for growth, God wants us to be involved. Oh, Pete, you're not going there. I am. I honestly think someone could get saved because you genuinely say, look, I go to church, I'd love you to come along. Someone could find Jesus Christ because you say, hey, my church is doing this alpha. Why don't you come along? Come and have an evening. You know what I'm saying? Someone could find Christ because you step out of a comfort zone and say, I'll pray for you. You're not well? Let me pray for you right here, right now. Because you don't just hear from God while you're in a meeting. You hear from God on the bus. I think that is something of what we can do. I think even, and I would say this, I mean, it's great. I mean, I love the fact the place is packed today. People, we need people serving here all the time. I'm trying to see if I can see James. Is James about... He's probably out working right now, here this morning, setting up, in charge of setting up. We need more people to help. Hey, you might think, actually, Pete, I'd like to do something as a result of this. I believe in this. I want to give myself to something that's going to last forever. Sign up with James. That would be fantastic. At the end of the chapter as well, 
you can read it for yourself. What we realize is these, these people were so committed to growth, what did they do? They gave. They gave. It says they gave gold, they gave bowls, they gave garments, they gave silver. You see, what they realized is, hey, if we're not going to just settle for something small, we're going to play our part. I've loved it this last month, and I'm meant to have stopped now, so I'm, I'm naughty because I've sneaked into the next month. We've just been registered as a charity. We've been saying to people, sign up on a gift aid. This is really a chance, though, not just to say, oh, it's a bit of paper. It's a chance to say, hey, my heart is, I'm in. This is a part of who I am. This is how I choose to invest my money. I'm believing for this eternal kingdom. I think, oh, God, let me be like that. Oh, you know, how could I invest? Not because I have to. I'm not compelled. I'm compelled because of what God has done. It's not because Pete's given me a bit of paper. You see, I think if we want to see something here, we need to make decisions about where we live, how we serve, and how we give. Now, I think there's a battle on. I'll be honest. We planned this series some time ago. I don't know if I should say this. I'm not sure if it will go out on CD. So if you've not heard it now, if you forget it, you may never hear it again. I was really hoping this morning to be able to say, look, guys, this room is no longer good enough. I don't know about you. Just look around. These people, they're sat the edges against the wall. I mean, if old Rob needs a toilet, he's got to climb across five people just to get there. I mean, I don't know if you've ever sat in the front row, but I mean, you know, if, if you don't know what these guys had for breakfast, you find out just by the way they're singing. I mean, it's so limited on space. I, I find it a bit embarrassing because the parents turn up. If you look around at the back, we say, I'm really sorry, but you can't bring your pushchairs in here. We just haven't got the space. I mean, I don't know. Just look around now. If, if, I, if I turned up with my family of four, well, I'm not sure where to sit because every chair has got something on. There's not four chairs just together. So I suddenly think, I'm not sure I'm welcome here. I might think I'd better not come. I think this place has just got... You see, I worry that most of you don't get here in time for coffee because there's not enough space to get one. That you think, oh, Pete, the coffee... You know, I'm sure if I found a better space, you'd all get here for 10 o'clock. That is a faith statement, trust me. <laughs> That's the biggest faith statement I've made, but I'm believing it. You see, I, I genuinely think, actually... I, I don't know about you. My wife's out on the kids today. One week, I don't know if you're aware, they do weddings above us. One week, she had some kids going, oh, it's too loud at the weddings. I think that's not good enough for our kids. It's not good enough that kids turn up and they can't hear the Bible. Yeah, I think even here, I bless them. They do such a great job with it, but they often think, oh, I hope we weren't too noisy for you, Pete. I'd love them to have a room where you think they could make as much noise as they liked. I'd love them to have a facility for the kids where they could just go bananas, have a great time. I'd love to have told you where it was today, but unfortunately I've hit another brick wall. It's a battle. But I tell you, we will find somewhere that's going to be bigger. And I honestly believe that. I believe the prophetic word. I believe it's a kingdom thing. I believe this, this is partly why we're going to gather and pray on Wednesday. Partly because we say, God, we believe it's not about us, it's about him. Ultimately, what Nehemiah said is, he said, look, this is too small a thing. Whatever is here this morning, it's too small a thing. You think, we, we, we believe that we're part of God's mission to reach this world it's too small a thing isn't it let's pray 
Jesus, we do want to see your kingdom come. You, you, you encouraged us to pray that. Jesus, we know that you are building your church. We love the fact, like Nehemiah, we get the privilege of playing our part. Lord, I pray even now you'd speak to people. What is the part for them? Is it saying, no, my decision is I'm based in healing because I want to be, I'm sticking it for redeemer. Is it, no, actually my decision is I'm going to serve. I don't serve yet in any way. I'd love to. Sign me up. Are you speaking to people about, I, I don't give regularly, but I'd like to. I pray that we will get involved in seeing something of what we hear around the world happen here. Oh, God, I'd love, I'd love it. Another story. We're still in prayer. A church in Northern Ireland had a prophetic word over them a year ago that you'll see people saved every week. Since the 17th of November last year, they've seen 2,500 people saved. I'm sad enough to do it on the calculator at 6.8 a week. God, we want to see things like that happen here. God, we do want to see your kingdom come in our life. Lord, we thank you for what's happened in the first two years. But God, we, like Nehemiah, prophetically say this morning, this is not enough. This is not enough. God, we want to see more. We, want, we don't just want a mayor to come to a carol service. We want them to be touched with the gospel. God, we want that for our MPs. We want it for our councillors. Oh, God, we say, let your kingdom come. Let it happen. Lord, we know it would be uncomfortable for some of us. There'd be some change. But, Father, we do so want to see your kingdom come. For your glory. Amen.